Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, today we're undertaking our first interview on XJob Downloaded. The purpose of XJob Downloaded is to meet people that have served the Queen, country, president, across the world, United Kingdom, you name it, we've got people coming in to do it. Today we're going to be interviewing Steve Hutley. Steve is a former police officer and now runs Rehabilitation Training, which is a dog training company. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for coming in. Morning, Paul. Nice to meet you again. Yeah, well, we've, we've known each other for an awful long time and um, I'm really grateful for you being my guinea pig, if that makes sense. And it's really weird looking across the room to somebody that I know. So, um, Steve, you joined the police in 1985, but prior to that, you know, just talk us through Steve Hutley. What, what was Steve Hutley about and where did he come from? Uh, I was uh, born in Braintree, not too far away. Oh, right. Uh, moved to a little village called Peldon, just outside of Colchester when I was one. So mainly brought up there. Uh, went to school in Colchester at uh, Thomas Lord Audley. TLA, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when I left school, um, joined the Merchant Navy. Uh, wanted to join, wanted to see the world. So joined the Merchant Navy and um, my first trip was down the Falklands during the Falklands conflict, believe it or not. So what so. was the inspiration to join the Merchant Navy? Because you're talking about a time where 1981, 82, we, we ruled the waves to a certain certain degree. Mm-hmm. We had a really good merchant fleet. What what made you want to join the uh, um, the – it was the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, wasn't it? That you went yeah, to? that was uh, the company I, I first joined. It's basically joining the, the Navy was uh, a thing both my brother – um, wanted to do uh, as well, and and he did. Uh, he joined uh, P and O. He was a captain with P and O. Wow! So he went went high up. I was a little bit lower down, uh, but it was just wanting to do something with our lives and and see the world really. So uh, we we had a a babysitter when we were little who was in the merchant navy, and I think that's what sort of stemmed our interest. And uh, he used to come around and tell us stories of you know the Far East and stuff like yeah. that. So uh, I think that's yeah where 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 it all started. So yeah, we um, yeah my brother say went in at a sort of higher level. I went in at sort of the bottom bottom level. Uh, and uh, yeah, the first the first uh, ship that I went to went on was the RFA Resource, which was uh, an ammunition carrier. Wow. And uh, yeah, I joined that on second of December nineteen eighty one, and then on the third of April nineteen eighty two, we set sail to the Falklands. Wow! So talk talk me through that because I mean that I find that fascinating. That's a, a, a period we're, we're of a similar age. It's a period in our lives that we'll always remember. Margaret Thatcher, you know, all the, all the things that were going on at that time in the world, and. Of course, the media w- was a completely different beast as well. Talk me through what, how did that work for you? What, what was it? You know, what was it like? Yeah, well, we we weren't actually told we were going down there. We heard that uh, you know the Argentinians had uh, invaded South Georgia, uh, right down on the uh, the South Pole. You know, thousands of miles away. Uh, didn't really 
take an awful lot of interest at the no. time, you know. Um, and then it, it um, then once the their submarine, the Santa Fe, was sunk by our our navy, it all sort of went on from picked, there. Picked up from that, yeah. So uh, the first thing I knew that we were going to go down there. It's it's funny the the, the crew was uh, split into uh, in, in half and. Um, Half of us went on leave for a week, and then I came. I was lucky enough to be the first half. I came back, and then the second half of the crew was going to go. They went. Uh, they were only home for about two days before they were called back or, uh, from leave uh, to set sail down the Falklands. Uh, wow! Yeah. So, so where was the um, the vessel? Where was it based? Where right, we were we were up in uh, Rosyth in Scotland um, at the time. And um, uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> so yeah, we sailed from there. It took us a month basically to get down wow. to the, the Falklands. We stopped off at uh, the Ascension Islands, yeah. which is just south of the equator. So we crossed, crossed the equator. That was quite interesting because there's always a, a ritual for crossing the equator. Yeah. But uh, um, and it's the the first time you cross the equator, you're sort of initiated, but uh, we were quite lucky because we took um, um, SA, the SAS and the SBS right. and, and normal Marines down yeah. with us as well. And obviously that was their first time to cross the equator. So the uh, member, me and uh, another friend of mine who <laughs> crossed the equator for the first time, we went and hid Did you? <laughs> because the initiation process was quite interesting. Oh, was you it? Just, get okay, co- we'll covered leave that in there. slop and stuff like oh, that. Really? Sort of a like, bit of a, a trial sort of thing, yeah. you know. Uh, so we went and hid, but because it was like so many uh, military personnel were involved in it, they were quite happy to do that themselves. Fantastic. So we actually got away with it. Actually. So. Fantastic. I mean, it is. And, and so let's get this right. You're 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been brought up in rural Essex, rural Colchester. Um, You've joined the, the the merchant navy, thinking, "No, oh, yeah, I'm going to see the world." You, I don't suppose for one second you expected that part of the world to be the Falkland Islands. No, no, we didn't, because actually uh, we were due to go down to the Far East for nine months for nine months tour of the Far East. Wow! Uh, so I was looking forward to that. Yeah, I'll and bet. then that that got scuppered because obviously the Falklands war broke out. So instead of going down to the Far East, we went down to the Falklands. So. Uh, and what were you told on the way down there? Bear in mind, this is taking a month. What did mm. you actually know? What did you know about what was going on at that time? Uh, very little, really, apart from just listening to uh, BBC World Service on the radio. Yeah. Uh, that's the only communication we had. Um, so we weren't told, because uh, we were the, you know, I was a junior ordinary seaman at the time, yeah. which was my... Uh, uh, my grade sort of thing. So we were sort of told really very little. We sort of picked up, you know, with the fact we were going down there. Obviously, we took the SAS, the SBS and some Marines down there with us. Um, so we knew that that's what we were going to do. But we had, or I had, or I certainly had it in my mind that we were just going to take them down there, drop them off on the islands. They were going to do their stuff. End of let's take them home and, and that was it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it didn't work out that way. Sort of it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I suppose at, at that age there's a, a an element of naivety that 
you think things are just going to take place and it's all going to be done and you'll be coming mm. back. When you say about listening to the radio, and we all did it, I think everybody that will be listening to this, who if they're around at that time in the UK, we were all listening to those radios, the, the World Service, the BBC News. You didn't have that instant gratification that the, the media now have. Every war zone has got... Mm. Um, a correspondent in there, the sky will be there. You'll have people running onto the beaches with the Marines now, whereas before mm. they didn't. Yes, you had a camera crew, but it took a long time for that footage to come back. So as a 17-year-old then, we only had three television channels, I think, at that point mm. as well. Yeah, I yeah, we did, yeah. So, yeah. you know, and, we, and they played the national anthem on a Saturday night at the last knock-ins. But as a 17-year-old, how were you feeling? Yeah, it was it was really weird. Sort of quite excited. It's a little, a little bit different, but it was like they didn't really know, did didn't think that we we're going to get involved as much as we did. Um, and it's yeah. Then think after the Ascension Island, it might have been when we were down at the Ascension Islands. Then um, some press uh, people were being flown on board. Right, uh, were reported uh, obviously. So again, you just think, well, we obviously. You know something is going off, or just they're they're going to obviously report on what's what's yeah. going on, but it wasn't until the first British ship, uh, was HMS Sheffield, got hit, right, that it really dawned on you, and this is this is pretty serious. And were you um, there when when that first? So you're on the spearhead. You're 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 you've got all the 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 um the soldiers, the military from whatever section. Had you arrived by the time the first battles had started? Had you arrived in in the on the island? We'd uh, gone inside the total exclusion zone, right? Because um, again, going back to when you were saying, you know, when did you realise it was going on? We because we were the main ammunition carrier for the whole task force. Wow! Um, I remember. Um, Remember stepping out on deck once, and it was a, a beautiful day. And the, believe it or not, the um, the ocean was virtually still. Yeah, um, it was that calm. And um, I looked out, you know, to one side, uh, and there was just a flotilla of ships going that side. Looked out to the other, there was another flotilla of ships. But either side were our two main aircraft carriers, and then it dawned on us that that they were protecting us. Because we had the main, you know, we had all the ammo uh, on board us, you know, so we were sort of like the main main ship of the task force. Mm. I always thought then, if the Argentinians had sort of realised or aimed for us, it might have been a little bit different, you know. But uh, it had been over for an awful yeah. Lot of but so once the um, you know the first ship, um, uh, HMS Coventry, I said, I think it was, uh, got hit, and it really dawned on us because yeah. we had the survivors we were the the closest ship in the area that had a doctor on board wow. so they flew a lot of the with it was all i think they sort of moved them about obviously we had a lot of the survivors on board uh, how did that make you feel that. though steve i mean all of a sudden this this thing that you set sail for a month beforehand has become a complete reality how did that mm. make you know as a 17 year old how did that make you feel it I could always remember thinking that there was there was nothing I could do about it. That was the thing I couldn't get off the ship. No. I was there. You either step up, do your job, and 
just keep your fingers crossed. Yeah. And that was all it was. It really dawned on me that, you know, there was nothing you could do, so that there's nothing to worry about and, you know, keep your fingers crossed and hope for the best. And and the Royal Fleet Auxiliary do a fantastic role um, and they're still active. They're still mm-hmm. supporting yeah, the, yeah. The, the military ships. But putting this into context, you're 17. The, the youngest military personnel... Is eighteen if I if I remember rightly. They couldn't yeah. go to war until yeah, yeah. they were eighteen. It was it was quite funny because I remember when we did come back, um, and obviously there was all, all the t- TV with all the different you know the ships coming back and the celebrations and everything, and they're interviewing everybody. And I remember them interviewing this young uh, marine who had just turned eighteen, virtually on the day or the day day before. You know, they set sail, so he was old enough to go down there, making a big thing. Oh, yeah, you know, you literally, you know, you were the youngest one, you know. But obviously, forgetting people like myself who was seventeen. But uh, there was also a lad on on my ship, uh, locally from Harwich, as well, who was sixteen. You know, and as far as Unreal. I was aware, he was the the youngest youngest one down there but because we were members of the merchant navy not the royal navy we weren't classed as armed forces so we didn't we, we could still go down there even though we weren't old enough to fight sort of thing but you still got yourself at atlantic medal didn't you yeah yeah we got a got our medal and um yeah there's also if, if you've seen the medals they've got a like a little rosette yeah. on them as well and the rosettes uh, were, were given out for every month that you inside the total exclusion wow. zone you'd get a rosette um, so I've technically got two because we were there for two months. Wow! Um, but you just you have one as decoration on the medal. So uh, the heat of battle. What what did you actually see whilst you're you're sitting on a bomb? In in real terms, you're yeah, sitting in, in, a, in a mobile bomb. Yeah. Um, you've got all this ammunition for the the forces, the task force that are down in 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 the Falklands. And one direct strike with an exocet, and that would have been over quite quickly, wouldn't it? Yeah, I remember um, vividly. We we the first time we went into San Carlos Bay, yeah, which was nicknamed Bomb Alley afterwards because of the amount of airstrikes that uh, that happened when we were in there. We went in um, early one morning. Uh, it was just after um, HMS Antelope had been hit. Uh, they had two unexploded bombs on board. Uh, wow. They were they were um, airlifting people off by the um, uh, ID blokes. Um, you know, UXB people were trying to defuse the bombs, but unfortunately, one went up. Mm. Um, so we, yeah, we entered San Carlos Bay to see this HMS Antelope alight, burning. They, I think, by then they'd got everybody off so it was just a burning ship mm. uh we anchored probably uh, probably a quarter of a mile away from it so it was quite vivid and then during daylight we could see that this ship was just burning and and throughout the day there's quite vivid images which you've probably seen since where the the ship broke in half yeah and went down as a v uh, and I've yeah, I had my my little pocket camera with me at the time, so I was able to take 
because we were going, <laughs> that was the interesting, because we were going down to the Far East, wanted to get a decent camera, camera. down there. So I had this little 110 cartridge film wow. pocket camera with me, but uh, not many people had had cameras with them at the time. Obviously, didn't have phones to do it. So um, yeah, at least I, I was able to get some photographs and, and throughout the day got pictures of HMS Antelope going down. And, and that was another real sort of daunting thing, seeing a, a big naval ship sinking. Yeah. You know, and that still sits with you. I can tell. I can see. Yeah, yeah. You know, just by the way you're describing it, these are the things that mould us into the people that we are today. You know, these mm. these life experiences. The RFA, Sir Galahad, Sir Tristan, they were other vessels that that were targeted by mm-hmm. the Argentinians. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon Weston, First Battalion of the Welsh Guards. Yeah, you know that that was um, they were iconic pictures, mm. which will always sit in my memory. How, so you were down there for two months. Mm-hmm. How did that play out? How long? How long was that? You know, um, you, you're part of the force. How long? How long were you there whilst the battles were taking place? Uh, as I said, we pretty pretty much went straight down there inside the total exclusion zone, um, and then uh, we were we were as I said ma- the main ammunition carrier for the task force. So we were replenishing all the other Royal Navy ships. Um, and the the aircraft carriers, so we were there all, all the time. Um, uh, yeah, it wasn't until after it finished that so we went into San Carlos Bay. Um, then we yeah came out again. Um, I think went back down to South Georgia, came back again, and it wasn't until the uh, um, Argentinians had surrendered that we sort of you know went back back within the islands again, right. you know. But uh, Did you did you lay, I mean, I, I suppose my, my simple mind, when you're laying in your bunk at night, you're thinking, what's going to happen next? You know, what's mm. happening next? Where is the Argentinian, where's their Navy, where's where's their submarines? You must be, you must have that. Yeah, abs- absolutely, yeah. We were top good with, um, speak to the SAS and the SBS because they would go off sometimes for you know, a week or so, and then they'd come back on again, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. So we were all sort of speaking to them, trying to get a little bit of a, a an update, you know. Um, we had, uh, I remember another uh, another time we had, uh, there was a very high-ranking officer in the SAS who flew out from our ship um, and then, unfortunately, the helicopter crashed. Wow. Uh, and they all got killed. All and it was, again, I think it was literally the day after I'd, I happened to be speaking to him. You know? um, yeah, so that's, and I was, um, I used, I was also, while I was there, I was taking my steering certificate. Oh, so okay. I was actually steering the ship. Uh, and then the, I think that was the same, around about the same time. And we were, um, yeah, looking looking for for wreckage or something like that, as, mm. as far as I remember. And uh, yeah, that's quite Just, eerie in itself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it, it was, and it was literally say a day or, or t- two days before that I'd uh, speak. I, d- I didn't know at the time actually he was high ranking as he was until mm. obviously the information came back that he was in charge of this the the team that was. I think they were flying to Ch- Chile. I think. The, Right, and the and story it, sticks, and, it and then sometime they, they and on on route they 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 crashed, yeah, yeah. It's, it is. 
I've got, you know, we've we've all got mates and we've known each other a long time who've who've died in service and whatever. And it does have a marked impact on you as as an individual. Um, mm. So we go through the the Falklands conflict. Um, it's the end, and you're sailing back to the UK. What what was that like when when you knew that you were? This is an English cricket term, but pulling stumps, yeah. and you were going back. How did you feel? Yeah, no, it was great when it was finally over. Yeah, because like you said, that 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 uncertainty, that fear of what's what's going to happen next, sort of thing. So, um, remember thinking, actually, yeah, while I was down there, will I actually get home? Will mm. I be able to, you know, play football again? Will I be able to go out cycling? You know, my, yeah. <laughs> my hobbies. Yeah, uh, might not ever be able to do that again. And then when it was finally we we're on our way back, it was yeah, such a relief. And then not knowing uh, as well, you know, what my parents were going through because, as I said, we had no contact. We had, um, go back to them, we used to get telegrams. So they used to send telegrams and letters. And that was the big thing when they had a a letter letter drop uh, and they would just go into the mess room and just tip all these letters and parcels and everything like and you just go through and sort them out and you know yeah mate here's one for you oh oh, i've got one here oh steve here's one for you (laughs) you know and then you take them back to your cabin and just sit there and and read you know read and read what's been going on and that's what it is yeah that's all you could do was 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 letters you know and there's a huge paradox because now you, you I suppose if I was in power, I'd, I'd ban mobile phones from the workplace because I think mm. it, you know they're yeah. a distraction for one thing, but two, they can't often get you in trouble, as Absolutely, we've seen, yeah. you know, with other issues in other conflicts. Um, mm. But it's as again, it's about that instant gratification. We all want to WhatsApp, we all want to Instagram, we all want to do those things. Whereas mm. forty years ago, I mean, it's forty-one yeah. years next year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can't. You, you know, you yeah. can't understand, and and it's within our lifetime. But but let's put this into context. 1982, if you take that back 40 years, our grandfathers were fighting in the mm. Second World War. That's right, yeah. And that's, and that's, that, the, that's, that's the surreal that's element the to thing. all of this. Yeah, yeah. You just know you're getting older, yeah. which is a bonus that's as well. It. And I was, yeah, remember, you know, feeling for my parents who didn't know what was going on. And actually I felt better because I was there, I knew what was going on. Yeah, you know, but they they didn't. Uh, and another thing that sticks in sticks in my mind as well. We were um, um, what we call um, replenishing at sea, razzing, where we were uh, supplying um, HMS Ark Royal, one of the wow. aircraft carriers, yeah. like with with am, am, ammunition and uh, and stores and everything like that. And I remember having a break and going back into the mess room and listening to you know we'd always been tuned into BBC World Service. And then they gave out that there'd been unconfirmed reports that the Argentinians had sunk HMS Ark Royal. Oh, my life. Uh, sorry, HMS Hermes. Not, Hermes, wasn't Ark yeah. Ray, Sorry, HMS um, Hermes. Uh, yeah. And, and there's a member sort of saying to the radio, no, no, look, well, it's there looking out the porthole. You can see there's a ship there. It's fine, you know. But yeah. then, obviously, if people are, you know, got people on the Hermes, obviously relatives, and they're listening to that, you know, the whole world could cave in and that uh yeah there's a lot of but take that back again to the 1942 scenario where people were going to war and there was no news absolutely nothing yeah they did wait weeks before they'd heard that their nearest and dearest had been involved in a conflict or you know been been lost just waiting for that knock on the door which was the 
the only time yeah. they knew something bad had happened, you know. So you come back to the UK. Where did you Where did you sail to? Uh, we went back to uh, Plymouth. We uh, oh, yeah, sailed to Plymouth. Yeah, and my mum and dad uh, and uh, my best mate came down uh, to meet us there. And uh, yeah, fantastic. That's brilliant. Reunion. Yeah. And so, what was so that? Were there other vessels there, or did you come in as a? No, we came in on a, on our own. Yeah. Oh, did you? At, at that time, yeah. Uh, and then we were, came in. We had. Uh, some barges, local barges came out and met us out at sea and then they all sort of came in and had their flags flying. Bands and, playing? Uh, uh, I think they did on the quayside, yeah. yeah. How did you uh, feel? As you saw, oh, as you saw brilliant. the shore, Absolutely brilliant. you knew, you know, it's taken yeah. a month to sail down there, a month yeah. to sail back. You're, you haven't got the load that you had when you went down there. Obviously, a lot of um, munitions had already been used. And, but you can see the shoreline. How did you feel then? Yeah, as soon as you see uh, old Blighty again, oh. you know it was it was great. You know, being away seemed like you know for forever. Uh, so it was only uh, four months at the time, but it was a long time. Mm. And then to come back, knowing that you you know my, my parents were were waiting for me, you know, and uh, emotional. It was. Oh, yeah, I'd have been uh, in bits, as, mate. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And then when. Um, you know, my mum and dad, because being an ammunition carrier, you can't go alongside anywhere, so you have to uh, you have to anchor out oh, at right. sea. So they had to have what they call liberty boats, basically that just bring you know yeah. people, people out to you. And I remember sort of looking over, um, several boats were coming. I'm looking at it's my mum and dad in there. Couldn't see him on the first one, or whatever. I was couldn't see him on the second one, and then like the third one come along, you know, and. Um, and then when they got closer to the ship, I suddenly see this little banner with Aww. "Welcome Home, Steve," and the, the, my my best mate from school was was there with this banner. And then looking down, and my mum my mum hates heights, but she had to climb up this wooden ladder up the side of the ship, you know, to get to get to me, and she just. Oh my remember, God. remember saying, you know, that uh, yeah, I, I just knew you at the top there, so I had to keep keep doing it, you know. So it was uh, yeah, emotional. Oh reunion my, yeah, you can you there. can imagine. And I, I think as you get older, you become more in touch with your mortality. So when you're 17, 18, yeah. you don't understand the significance of what you've just been through. Hmm. It's only yeah. later on in life um, that you start to understand. There's an iconic photograph. I've got a really dear friend who's uh, he was a bee feature at Tower of London. He was in the Royal Marines and he came back and he had two two front teeth missing and there he is holding his daughter. And I still get choked looking at that now because mm. it's it's just, you yeah. know, that's what, that's what Britain is all about. You mm. know, it's that patriotism and the support, you know, for, for us, the red, white and blue, that's, that's where we were. Mm. Um, so you're back in the UK now. It's 19, it's later on in 1982 and you served for another how many years with the RFA? Uh, I served for just under four years right. uh, altogether. Um, but uh, after the Falklands, because that was the, obviously my, my first trip, my first job, it sort of became, was a little bit mundane <laughs> after that, you know. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't a sort of a glorious life, perhaps like my brother was doing, you know, sailing around the world. and uh, On cruise sailing, liners. On cruise liners. So it was a little bit different. I ended up with the, the next job I had was on because uh, I'd, uh, swap from um, the RFA, and then the next job was with FT Everard's, a small um, 
uh, oil coastal tanker. Wow. Uh, which uh, just sort of went around the British Isles, you know, and then over to near new, uh, near Europe, you know, sort of over to Holland. You couldn't get Germany. two more different. No, areas. no, that's right. You know, but it's definitely a, that was an eye opener as well in itself, you know. And then after that, then I got another job back with the uh, the RFA again, uh, and uh, then did then because I wanted to sort of see a bit more of the world I then left um and joined um OCL Overseas Containers Limited yep. uh and got flown down that was really interesting got flown down to New Zealand to pick the ship up wow so it took me 36 hours to get there <laughs> from when I left Heathrow uh via uh Bahrain Singapore two places in Australia and then finally um New Zealand and then when I got down there the um there was thick fog so um we couldn't go out to the to, the ship couldn't come in so i couldn't couldn't join the ship so they had to put me up in a hotel overnight <laughs> the next morning picked me up and the ship was in and then i joined the ship and you sailed so, back to the uk on and that? then sailed back to the uk yeah via oh. the um cape horn and, uh, yeah. there's always stories for, for sailors about going around cape yeah. horn and that was rough that was probably the roughest seas that I'd been on. Really? And uh, so that was, uh, again, experience. But also another interesting thing was because um, we crossed over the date line. So we had yep. an eight-day week. We had two Fridays. That's crazy. <laughs> so, yeah. So we sort of finished working on the Friday, ready for the Saturday, and then had to work another Friday again. Wow. So that was, that was I wonder crazy. what our merchant fleet looks like now, though, because I think – I don't know – but I would imagine that there's a lot of vessels that are registered abroad and mm-hmm. a lot of the sailors come from other countries. Yeah, so yeah. we don't have a, a mm. British merchant Navy fleet per se. I don't know. I might be wrong. Yeah. Um, I've sort of, yeah, lost contact with yeah. what is what is going on out there, you know, but it certainly wasn't, it's, it's, I assume it's not as big as it used to be. Right. Like you say, yeah, the ships are being sold and um, a lot of, I know, again, you know, um, with my brother, you know, a lot of the, the crew were, you know, sort of Indians, Filipinos, yeah. uh, you know, people like that, you know. And the vessels have got bigger, so they don't, yeah. you know, yeah, you only have abs- to look at them going in and out of Absolutely, Felix, yeah, yeah. So move on. We're now getting to the end of your service in, in the uh, Merchant Navy. Mm-hmm. And in 1985, you joined Essex Police. Yes, I did, yeah. I've come from a bl- police background. Um, my granddad great-granddad and uh, uncles had been in the police. So I was sort of uh, on my mum's side, so sort of in the blood sort Natural of Natural progression. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, that's, that's when my sort of first connection with dogs came in, you know. Um, people always say, you know, what uh, what did dogs did you have when you were growing up, you know. And our family didn't have any dogs at all. But I always remember when I was a kid at the top of my Christmas list was I want a dog, dog, I want a puppy, you know, and my mum used to say, well, you know, when you when you leave home, you can get your own uh, own dog or you join the police, you get a dog through there, you know. <laughs> so that was sort of half my intention, you know. I Brilliant. thought, well, I joined the police, that would be quite interesting because, again, I didn't want a normal nine to five office job. I wanted something with a little bit of uncertainty, you know, yeah. and the police was certainly like that, you know. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so when I when I joined and virtually straight away, or you know, after, certainly after my two years probation, applied, you know, to go to the get in the dog section, and that finally took uh, ten years before I got accepted. Um, uh, yeah, because a bit back then it was a little bit 
dead man's shoes. Uh, that was the exact term I was going to yeah. use. Yeah, yeah, people stayed know, there forever. And they they did, but yeah, very uh, and some lovely, yeah. lovely people that you know I worked with on there, and yeah, some great yeah. stories about yeah. all of them. But you're quite right; they once they got on there, they weren't going anywhere. No, that's right. So when I finally made it after ten years, that was it. I thought I'm quite. I'm going to stay on here. I don't want to leave. You know, didn't really want promotion. So I was just quite happy. Yeah, yeah, just working with my dog. And uh, yeah, yeah, spent 19 years. Um, and and on, moving on later, we'll come on to that later on, but mm. it served you in good stead for what you do now. Yeah, absolutely. You, you couldn't absolutely, do what you yeah. do now without, the, no, without what no, you've learned within no, the police service. No, definitely not. So your highlights, What's the what was the highlight of joining Essex Police? I mean, I, I loved being in the police service. Um it's a it's a job that people pay money to do, but you know, tell us about some of your some of your things and you know the the highlights that that you have got in your memories. Yeah, one thing that sticks sticks out when I was um, before I was on dogs, um, I was working over at Clacton. I was worked at Clacton for four years. Um, Princess Diana came down to open a children's his children's cancer home right. down in Jaywick. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I was on, on duty there and, um, yeah, she sort of came along and stood right next to me. Didn't speak to me, obviously, because she was talking to the crowds, you know, but, uh, yeah, stood right next to me. So I had a li- little glimpse round yeah. at her, you know. So, like I say, I stood next to, you know, Princess, Princess Diana. Diana. So that was, uh, yeah. Another iconic out. figure, you know. It's, um, yeah. It's bizarre what, what mm. make, makes you tick. So, what was what was it like in Clacton then? Nineteen eighty. What were we talking? Did you start at Clacton? No, I started uh, started at Saffron Walden. I did my did my two year uh, two years probation at Saffron Walden. Uh, then I went to Great Dunmo. Uh, did two years at Great Dunmo, uh, but always wanted to come back to the Colchester yeah. division, Colchester, where where I was sort of from. So uh, then you used to put in like voluntary transfer request if you remember yeah so uh, i put in for yeah i think colchester clacton or harridge to sort of get in that area and i got clacton wow so uh yeah so after four yeah four years in the job i then got moved over at the old police station so yes yes the old police station at, at clacton which which was great you know, sort of Saffron Wold and Dunmo were very uh, obviously totally different to yeah. places like Clacton, you know. So that was sort of, you know, um, um, but you learned your learnt. craft in these, quiet absolutely. Places. Yes, I think yeah, that, that, a lot of that's lost. People go, Oh, what yeah. did, you got posted well, where, but you dealt with everything, yeah. That's yeah, you know, being when I in my probation out at, at um, you know, Saffron Walden, um, with my tutor constable, you know, you knew that. Um, if you're in trouble, then it would be half an hour before we had backup. Yeah, and just uh, to put this into context for anybody who's listening, <clears throat> um, Saffron Walden is an outpost of Essex, basically. You're closer to Cambridge, which is a completely different police service to the one in which you're working. So, and at that time, it mm. came under Harlow, which was a, that was a the half hour the old, drive. The old Harlow division, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. Because yeah. nobody actually yeah. wanted Saffron Walden because it was too, <laughs> they didn't because it was too far from anywhere. They yeah. should have chopped it off and give, should have given it to Cambridgeshire because yeah. it was that much closer to it. It was. But as, as I said, it was a lovely place, very quiet. Nice people. Um, yeah, and I literally spent my, my, my first two years just walking the beat because you weren't given temporary 
car no. tickets or anything. You literally walked everywhere, you know. So as you said, yeah, learnt my craft for those first two years there, then went to Dunmo, and then I, you know, passed my, my driving course. So then I was able to start driving police cars, you know. And even then, you know, Dunmo's a little, you know, quiet market town. It is, but it has its moments. Um, it does, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was that was great time time there. And then, as I said, yeah, put in to move back to the the Colchester division, then got Clacton. And again, that was great because it's totally different to what I was used to, and um, very busy. As yeah, well. yeah, absolutely. But uh, I worked on a robbery at Dumbo where a man called Martin Valentine um, was convicted for shooting a security guard. Armed robbery on the street, you know. All right. I don't think they have right. armed robberies like that anymore. Thankfully. Yeah, but, no, you no. Know, that, that was that was the sort of place it was. So you're now yeah. on the dog section, and mm-hmm. you've got your dream job. You've got yeah. your dream dog. Yes. And that was the funny thing. My my police dog was my very first dog. As I said, never had a dog before. Um, my the only connection with the dog. My uncle was um, a dog handler in the Met. Right. Uh, when we used to go around his house, and we'd see him with his dog, and he would do a little bit, of, you know, obedience training in the garden and stuff. And I remember him sort of letting the dog into the house and my mum would say, yeah, you know, keep, keep your hands behind your back, you know, <laughs> thinking the dog's just going to bite anything, but obviously he didn't. No. And it was just like fascinating seeing him, the relationship he had with his dog. And, and I, I think that sort of, as I said, prior to that, I wanted, I had this affiliation with dogs, but didn't know why. But then that was sort of like, like that was, that's what it did to me. Yeah, I'm going to join the police. And I'm going to get a dog. And it's an unrequited love because people, mm. People don't understand those dogs will die for you. Absolutely, you know yeah, that yeah. you can't you can't yeah. explain that to someone who's got. Yeah. Um, and we, I've got dogs, and you know, we've always had dogs. My, my dad, as you know, my dad's got a German Shepherd, but mm. we always had German Shepherds. But those police dogs would die for their handlers. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, my very first dog I lost in a in a road accident. Oh, I didn't know that. At, at work. Too. Yeah, uh, it was only three and a half, you know, uh, and and that, yeah, was absolutely, yeah. Devastating. Devastating, yeah. Still breaks my heart to this day. Yeah, sorry, um, I mean. But, um, yeah, and I know, you know, um, there's, a, there's a couple of mates who have lost their dogs during, um, whilst on patrol, whilst yeah, on yeah, duty, no, you know. Yeah, unfortunately and, um, it does, does happen, yeah. Yeah, it does. But you can't, it, it doesn't matter. People say, oh, you know, they're a work tool, but they're not. They're your best mate. They're the most reliable yeah. thing in your life. They're the only thing that is not going to argue with you, not going to tell you you're late yeah, home. Absolutely. Not going to tell you you haven't picked your well, socks used, up by the side of your I was used bed. to say, you spend more time with your dog than you do your wife or yeah, your partner. Yeah, Because you literally are with them every day. Yeah. Even when you're not working, yeah. they're living at home with you, so you still have to take them out, exercise them, you know, train them, whatever. And then when you're back at work, of course, they're in the back of your van, they're with you and go to every job. What was the name of your first dog? Arrow. Arrow. So yeah. when you lost Arrow... What was the yeah. support like from from the police service? How did they? How did the police service deal with it? Yeah, they were they were very good. They were very good, uh, very supportive. Um, yeah, they gave me you know a little bit of time off you know afterwards to yeah. to get over that uh, as as well. Um, and then it was like, yeah, we need to you know get you back on Move back on. working yeah. again. Uh, and then I remember getting a phone call. Um, 
from Graham Knight, if you remember. Yeah, 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 I do. Bless him. Um, he's no longer with us. Graham Knight, yeah, phoned us up and said, look, just been offered this uh, this German Shepherd uh, from a house in Colchester. Um, family would you, pet? Would you, um, family pet? Yeah, obviously you need a dog. I'm going to go around to see it this afternoon. Do you want to come with me? So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I remember, yeah, Graham came and picked us up and we drove to the house and um, remember thinking because um, my daughter was was young then uh, and he had my daughter, so I thought I wanted him, you know, the dog yeah. to get on with, with children, you know. So when we knocked at the door, they said, yeah, you come in. And they said, um, oh, yeah, he's um, he's outside in the back garden with my daughter. So I sort of walked out in the back and there's this another like, little three-year-old girl playing with him outside, you know. So I thought, yeah. You knew straight away it, that, it, that it was the do. one. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was my second dog, uh, Trojan. Trojan. Yeah. Although he was named Tyson at the time. Oh, was he? Yeah. And, uh, that was a popular name for dogs at It that was. Point. Tyson and Bruno was yeah. the main things. <laughs> and it was just after, I think, Tyson had bitten some bloke's ear off oh, really? too long and it, so he had a bit of a bad thing so I thought I, I, I wanted to change change yeah. the name but I didn't want to you know um, I didn't want to change it that much so I changed it from Tyson to Trojan so it had the same sort of sound yeah and um, yeah, he was he was an awesome dog. And how long did you keep him for? Yeah, until he retired. Right. Um, kept him until he retired, and that was the thing. When he retired, you know, I felt I owed him, you know, a good retirement. Yeah. Um, but the year before, I then got his replacement, right. Gus. I got him yeah. as a, a five-month-old puppy, so I was running the two together. So when I went to work, it's great. I had Gus and Trojan, obviously. Trojan was my working dog and yeah. Gus was just like learning the ropes sort of thing. Um, so when Trojan retired, the you know, the sad thing, he doesn't know he's retired. And no. all of a sudden, from going to work with me every day, he suddenly left at home and I'm now just taking Gus into work, you know. So, you know, I wanted to keep Trojan because I thought, well, you know. Yeah, you owed it to him. I owed it to him. It, it saved me, uh, you know, from a few, few, you know, scrapes and um, incidents over the over the years. So, but because then I was, you know, living on my own, I could see him physically sort of going downhill, you know, from, I'm working every day and then suddenly I'm not doing anything yeah. at all, you know. So then, um, you know, I thought, well, I owe it to him to give him a good life. So, um I managed to rehome him with a local farmer. Oh wow! Um, yeah, over at Eastthorpe, um, who I still keep in contact oh, with now. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so he he went with him, uh, and I could still you know pop round and see him, and even on my days off, I remember when my son was little, we'd like go and on my day off, and we go and take him for a walk and and stuff, or you know, and, that's fantastic. Uh, and yeah. You know, pop in for a, a cup of tea as you do yeah. every now and again. When I had Gus, you know, as well, when he still remembered me when I went round there oh. each time, you know, yeah. Because Essex Police have got a fantastic um, retirement um, support, haven't they? For, for yeah. former dogs. I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's been a lot of work done by some great dog handlers across the UK, but you know, Essex is dear to my heart, and they 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 run a very good scheme um, to support. Dogs because they're they're expensive, aren't they? Once yeah, no, ab- absolutely, retire, yeah. Because got- years ago, when yeah, when your dog retires, it's signed over to you, and it's everything's down to yourself. All the so now, is yours. Yeah, yeah, so it's your vet bills, your, you know, your food and everything else, and then um, uh, yeah, the Essex Retired Police Dog Fund was set up, so those bills 
were paid by the charity. And, yeah, and as I said, that's still going on and going from strength, strength to strength. strength. Yeah. I think I think I'm right in saying that Essex were the first force that yes. started doing that, and other forces have started doing doing that because of the uh, success. So let, let's go back. So PC Hutley's on duty and then he gets a call to say the suspects make off. What's that like? As you're driving down <laughs> from Clacton to Braintree, which is 35 miles, say, yeah. your blue lights, your dog's barking in the back. What does that feel like for you? Oh, it's yeah, it's a big adrenaline rush, obviously, but like any anything you're going to you're you're trying to picture what's you know what is it how much trying to gain as much information as you can but also hoping that the people that are first on the scene sort of keep it sterile don't mess up a track a possible track or or whatever you know um and then yeah you know if things are right and the timing's right and no one's messed up any tracks or something like that you know there's going to be a good chance um, especially sort of more rural, the rural what stuff was good, you know, in towns, you know, by the time you get there, they're probably well away and it's very contaminated and they're probably home and home and tucked up yeah. in bed by the time you get there. But if it was a rural, you know, job particularly, then there's more chance of them still being hiding up somewhere in the ditch or up a tree or something like that. But and and, and I've them. been there. I mean, I've been there a couple of times. One where... Um, a dog thought I was a suspect in a church and I had to stand still because mm. otherwise um, it had been over quite quickly. Um, and the other one where the suspect was was caught in a ditch after doing a dwelling burglary. And I think the the excitement, the, 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 the reward for the dog and the excitement of the handler can't be underestimated because it's such, a, it's such an achievement. The dog is such a highly powered tool for want of a better word, but you know the work that they do when they're tracking missing persons, suspects, all that—you can't underestimate that, and you can't replace it. Hmm. I mean, working with the helicopter because we had a helicopter on tap then, didn't we? Right, now, yeah, yeah. Now they're, they're they're struggling. Yeah, um, we're swinging that old blue lamp. But you know, working with a helicopter with a heat seeker, having a dog as well—you were guaranteed on catching a suspect. Yeah, obviously, yeah, especially when once we got the helicopter. Um, you know, the odds of them being caught went up dramatically. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, that was that was brilliant. And they, in conjunction with us, you know, they could, you know, hone us in into what they were picking up. You know, a lot of it, you suddenly turn, yeah, you're there, and it turned out to be an old bonfire or something yeah. like that. You know, but you know. <laughs> But yeah. it certainly was a was an asset, you know, to get the helicopter up in in the air and the dog down on the ground. What about public order? Did you ever get involved in any of the uh, public order stuff? The, the Colch United football. Yeah, uh, yeah, we used to yeah do do the football. That was uh, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, and it had a few few occasions where it did did kick off, uh, and the, the dogs were brilliant. You know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because you could do anything you wanted, but if a police dog turned up. It just brought the whole thing into some semblance of order because mm. actually, the 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 risk element, the football hooligans, they didn't want to get bitten. No, but more to the point, right. neither did the copper that was standing. No, there, no, was- absolutely. So we had a yeah, space ourselves out sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I remember one one funny story. We were um, uh, outside. Um, old Colchester United ground at Layer Road when they used to play at Layer Road yeah. and we standing there and all the crowds were coming out and the dogs were all barking rah, 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 and all you know people were all keeping the distance you know and then 
Well, uh, my dad and my brother <laughs> had gone to the game. And as they're walking, walking along, you know, they see me. Oh, yeah, Steve, all right, you know. And they sort of come over, you know. And then I could just sort of um, – I had Gus then. I remember Gus sort of seeing them. And he was just about to sort of turn from his aggression into his, oh, hello, I know you, you know. And he was like, yeah, just just yeah, yeah, just keep over there, please. Move, move on. I'll, I'll, I'll see you later sort of thing, you know, because I didn't want them coming up and he suddenly rolls on his back and they're rubbing, rubbing his belly, you know, in front of everybody. <laughs> but that was how quickly a dog could switch yeah. from one to the other. But yeah, I think that – that, and that comes into your, your future life. People – um, don't understand the psychology of a dog, mm. how how a dog can go from being oh, the, yeah. the most friendly family pet to being really grumpy mm. and how they deal with their, how they out, outpour their emotions and sometimes mm. that's in, in some yeah. form of aggression. But yeah. um, So we go through 2015. The highlights of being in the police, what's the highlights? Yeah, I think the, the probably the real highlight of... My career in the dog section is uh, actually achieving something I'd wanted from the first day I joined. Uh, I was lucky enough with my last police dog, Rafa, that I won the Essex Police Dog Trials. <laughs> I was the uh, the police dog champion with with, with Rafa, uh, and that was a sort of uh, a, a nice way because it says obviously it's something that I wanted um, since I joined the dog section I'd always you know tried with uh, with my other dogs and uh, sort of got fairly close with 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 Gus a couple of times but just uh, the the title the championship eluded me right um then my very last police dog he was only two and a half at the time and normally you have to be three or have served on the the streets for about a year before right. you you're allowed to enter the uh, the police dog trials but he was only two and a half um and they'd opened the trials up that year to to anybody that wanted to do it so i thought well okay well i'll, I'll do it and that will give me a good idea of where Rafa was, you know, in yeah. conjunction with all the other police dogs sort of thing. And, um, yeah, surprisingly, I won it. Fantastic. <laughs> I, uh, and also the same, uh, that same year I won with him, I, I won the uh, the tracking trophy as well, which had eluded me. So, uh, yeah, so it was a lovely way to sort of go out because the, the year after that um, was when they, um, you know, decided to cut the dog section. Right. And... Um, I was one of those that was removed, um, so it was sort of a bittersweet pill, really, because um, well, I was going to retire anyway. Although the idea was I might stay on for a few years yeah. and, and carry on working with Rafa, but once they decided that I wasn't going to stay on the dog section, then then obviously they had to take my dog away from me. Um, That's hard. It it was, yeah. So that was another, uh, you know, yeah, hard to see. It made it a lot easier because um one of my uh, colleagues uh, gary lambert unfortunately had lost one of his his dogs in a training accident which was uh, absolutely devastating um for for both of us because we run together we work together yeah. um so gary ended up um with rafa which was great because we worked together we'd run together so gary knew how i trained rafa rafa knew gary uh so it's quite a sort All of fell into place transition really and then um because i would having to give up a dog and Gary wanted a dog, you know, that, uh, that worked. And then once I'd left, I, I was still, you know, I'm still friends with Gary now. And, Brilliant. um, although, um, he's now taken uh, over on <coughs> the training department, <coughs> excuse me. 
Uh, so he, when Rafa did retire, he's, he rehomed him to. Oh, uh, did he? Funnily enough, he rehomed him to a, a, a lovely family up in Norfolk, who I also keep in touch with through him. I got to know them. Uh, last year, uh, we were up in Norfolk and we went round and, and, and saw the family and, and saw Rafa oh, brilliant. as well. So it's a, yeah, it all ended really well for, for both of us. You know, that was great. You talk about rehoming. This is, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, and he's a notorious man by the name of Harry Roberts. He um, murdered three police officers. And when the police dog that caught him was rehomed, we had him. Really? Yeah. And my oh, dad, right. my dad actually rehomed him to a, a pub in Colchester to, I can't remember the name of the pub. Um, but yeah, so my dad rehomed him in like in the, Early seventies to, yeah. to a pub in in so, The Buglehorn. There's a pub called the Buglehorn, right. and um, right. yeah, they had it. The uh, yeah, obviously the the highlights was nineteen years on the dog section, uh, and yeah, in those nineteen years, um, I think I mentored four police dog handlers who came to to Colchester. Um, so when the new dog handler came in, they went with uh, obviously another. You know, dog handler, mentor, yep. to ease them back in and uh, show them the ropes, sort of thing. So, yeah, it sort of helped helped uh, bring on four um, dog handlers who all made it to the regional police dog trials as well, wow. and also the nationals as well. A couple of them, um, which I did myself with uh, my police dog Gus, who I was talking about. Um, yeah, I qualified for the regional police dog trials. And um, very close to winning the searching competition by uh, missed it by one mark. Wow! And that was the last person to go, <sighs> so I was winning it, and I dropped one mark. So I was just dropped one mark. He went and did it, and he put, did it perfect and didn't drop a mark. Mm. So hence he won. <laughs> that was a bit annoying. Which then uh, I then I, I finished in the I think I finished fifth. I think then um, in the top six then go on to the nationals <clears throat> um so then i qualified for the the national police dog trials as Brilliant. Well. so that was that was good yeah um we i had um sherlock the bloodhounds i remember well. the bloodhounds uh essex police were the first force to start using bloodhounds again for specialist uh, man trailing basically Malcolm um, Fish was the other Malcolm Fish, Fish started yeah. it yeah he, he started it with a um, uh, um, a lottery fund basically the National really? Lottery wow. uh, gave him some money to start up and, and what he did he brought two two bloodhounds and two German shepherds to train in what we call the, you know, the scent article method okay so um, where instead of following like the German shepherds would follow uh, where someone's walked, where they've crushed, you know, the the grass, yep. which gives off a scent, the scent from your, your shoes. So basically yep. wherever the person's walked would leave a scent. So that's what the German shepherds follow. Um, with the the, um, the bloodhounds, they were trained to follow just the person's scent. So if you gave them an article, say from a missing person with their scent on, they were that good that they could just – distinguish their scent from hundreds of other scents as well so hence you could do trailing through contaminated areas fantastic because they would they would follow that that one trail and they had some yeah fantastic results um as well and used to work all over the country in high profile murder and missing person cases as well really so yeah yeah 
So yeah. they'd, they'd call you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did you go um, to? Went up to, remember uh, a good good job that I had, I was called up to uh, Gloucestershire. There's the, in the Cotswolds, the Cotswolds Country Park, I think it's called or something. It's a massive area uh, with loads of different lakes in it, I remember. Okay. And, and this big, like, main road going down the middle of it. Um, they had a missing person um, turn up where his car was found there. I think he'd been missing from Bristol for quite a while. His car was found in the car park of the Cotswold Water Park. They had a local dog handler turn up, try and get a track, but uh, but failed. So they contacted me, would I go up there um, and see what I could do? So I drove up there, um, left early one morning, drove up there, uh, and then went with the same dog handler down to the scene. Um, they'd managed to force the way into the car. Uh, it, I got, uh, we used to use sterile gauze pads if there wasn't an article of clothing. Right. Um, so we'd use that and like leave it on the driver's seat, wipe it over the, the steering wheel where he touched it, you know, and then offer it up to the dog. And uh, then he took off. Uh, we we were, went for miles and miles and miles all around these um, lakes and everything. Uh, crossing over this main road in between. Yeah. Uh, eventually sort of went over the back and beyond and there was like a big sort of earthworks place around by this big lake. Uh, and I remember him suddenly, there was a big, big pile of earth and he suddenly shot around one side um, down towards the river. And I assume that was probably picked up with some um, fishermen down there or something like that. Um, and he shot round and went down to the river and put his feet in the river. He And that was a good indicator for me because he hated water. Right. You couldn't get him near water unless there was a scent there. So he went down to the water, lifted his head, come round, couldn't see anything. And then the other side of these earthworks, there was a like a big water inlet, is what I call it, where, in, where water would go into this big lake. So I then took him round the other side. There was nothing here. Let's take him round the other side, try him round there. Same thing. He went down to the water, came back, and they'd been trained. If the, the, the trail had finished, he would just stand in front of me. Right. And that was it. Okay. And then as I, you know, what we call cast him around, see, is there, is there another, you know, trail going off yep. anywhere? No, there isn't. He just stood in front of me. That's it, Dad. His finish is here. So we called up the inspector who was in charge of the, the missing persons inquiry and, and um, you know, showed him on the map. This is where we'd been and everything. So uh, so then I had to do, obviously, do a statement where we got, had a, you know, marked up on the map where the, the, the trail went, where it finished. Um, two weeks later, um, the inspector phones me up, says, you're spot on. Really? Said, yeah. The, bo- the body has been found in uh, uh, where well, they were a bit like Essex Police at the time. They got rid of their marine section oh. divers. So they said, well, if he's in there, we'll just let nature take, take his, his course. course. And about two weeks later, it, it popped up to the and, and for those listening, they, by nature taking its course, the body expands when it's underwater and it, it rises to the top. So very rarely will somebody get washed out to sea and their body not to be found. If they've gone into an estuary or, or similar, they end up on a shoreline. There's a famous case in London where a young girl was murdered and placed underneath a canal edge, and in time the body came up and floated to the surface. So mm. yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah, so fascinating. That was, uh, yeah, yeah. So. so 
the other thing about bloodhounds, I, I always think it's, it's very Americanism. There's an Americanism there. Yeah, absolutely. With Americans have been using them for years. Yes, yeah. Uh, and when we first had them, we had um, uh, the Jack Jack Shuler, who was the the main man from America, who ran um, who did the train the man trailing uh, training over in America, um, came over. Uh, and uh, did a week's training with us wow. just to sort of help us see, you know, if we were going wrong, how good the dogs were. Because, again, the, t- the two the two bloodhounds we had, you know, there's not many people breed bloodhounds, no. you know, proper bloodhounds. So um, I think they came from a, a breeder up in Norfolk, I think. So we just sort of, have you got bloodhounds? Yeah, we'll bark, you know, so they weren't you know, tried and tested or came from a proven stock, you know, so it was sort of, you know, cross your fingers and hope sort of thing, but they were really good and he was really, really impressed with it, you know. But um, unfortunately, at the end of the day, it all comes down to money and everything and uh, the powers to be who weren't doggy people, um, um, uh, annoyingly enough, didn't come to the handlers to say, look, we've decided, you know, we're thinking about pulling the plug on it. What do you think? You know, um, they decided, yeah, we're not going to use them anymore. And 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 personally, I think every police station should have a dog attached to it. I don't, you know, I, I think yeah. it, it's a resource yeah, that absolutely actually it's a lot cheaper to have one police dog than it is to have a, a couple of coppers. You know, yeah. sometimes because they, and, and because they yeah. can be more effective. Except they can't take statements. But then no, no, that doesn't happen very often. Yeah, anyway. I mean, when 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 I was when I was in the in the dog section, yeah, we had um, as I said six dog sections, three sort of south south of the county, three north of yep. the county. So there was all, all the time, but a lot of the time there were dogs available wherever. Yeah. Now they're they're based at Sandon, the dog section headquarters. Yeah. Everybody's there. So if you wanted, you know, uh, you know, a dog down in South End or down at, up in Clacton or Walton quickly. Forget they've got it. A, they, yeah, you know. They, I, they are sent to certain areas to patrol beforehand, so you might be lucky enough. But yeah. you know, I um, feel for the guys and, and girls that are doing yeah. the job now. And what what was the low point? I mean, we we, we talked about the, the the national trials, and and but what was the lowest point? Yeah, the 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 lowest point was definitely losing the first dog. Yeah, that was that that was heartbreaking. Um, that was, um, and also, yeah, the. My last year, I had a year to go, and that was when they had to um, make cuts in different departments, and we had to lose five dog handlers from from the dog section, and I was one of them. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, that hurts, doesn't it? When, it? when it does hurt, it does. But I'd sort of I, I hadn't made it known, but if if I had been accepted to stay on, I would have offered to go. Because I had nineteen wonderful years, I had one year left. I didn't want someone who had still got ten years to go being pulled out of the dog section. Yeah, and then I stay on it. Yeah, no, you know. So, um, but as it was, I was one of them anyway. So, okay, hands up. I've only got a year to go. So I saw my, and it was quite nice in a way because I sort of it's like a circle where you know I started off on shift, you know, and yeah. ended up on the dog section for nineteen years, and then my last year was back on shift again. And I really enjoyed it because 19 years, you're working on your own with your dog, but he's heard all your jokes and hates <laughs> your singing, you know. Uh, so to be back 
you know, especially, you know, being double crewed, not all the time, but when we're double yeah. crewed and you've just got that banter with people and you've got backup as well, you know, because a lot of times in the dog section, particularly towards the end, because there were so few police officers, you know, we were being sent to, to jobs on our own. Yeah. They, they changed. And, and there's jobs that you can't always get the dog out. To. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was just going to say. And the, the policy uh, a few years ago was whoever's the nearest car. And the nearest car could be a dog handler. So we would be sent to domestics, basically on your own, because you're not going to knock at your door with your dog saying, no. hello, you know, I've had a call from the neighbours, you know. <laughs> you know, so you'd leave the dog in the car, you go in and, and you know, you, you know yourself mm. what could what could happen. What could happen from domestics and what has and, you know, people have come unstuck because of it, you know. Massive. But, uh, so we get to the end of your service. And you've started up your own company. I mean, you've been going how long now? Yeah, I've uh, well, retired seven and a half years now. Seven and a half seven years. Seven and a half years, yeah. So two years prior to my retirement, um, I did a dog psychology course, a two-year dog psychology course to, to set yourself up in business as a dog behaviourist. So in my last two years, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd taken my course, I got my qualification, so when I'd retired, then started my business up. Just wondered how many badly behaved dogs there are out there, and thankfully, there's quite a few. Quite a few. <laughs> yeah, and it's just going from strength to strength, which is which is fantastic. And and, and you've had, I mean, I was reading your stats: two thousand customers. You had two. You've looked after yeah, two thousand. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Estimate. I haven't actually counted them up roughly. Um, yeah. you know. Coming up to about two thousand. That's a hell of a 2,000 figure, you know, Steve. Dogs, two thousand yeah. dogs. not two thousand customers. Probably two thousand dogs. dogs. Well, I've yeah. got three, and yeah. I know that you came yeah, in yeah. and saw those. And I know <clears> you've seen my parents' dog, and I think he was one of your first. Yeah, clients. that was. Uh, yeah, when, when I look back, funnily enough, yeah, your your dad uh, was the was my first customer. Fun, you know, before funny. I'd actually sort of officially sort of start, set up. Yeah. Um, he'd, he'd spoken, he'd been in into Colster Nick, spoken to one of the dog handlers and mentioned problems with his dog. <laughs> and then they said, oh, yeah, Steve, Steve Hutley's doing Boris. dog behavioural stuff now. Boris yeah, is still going, it. by the way. Oh, is he? Yeah, Brilliant. he hasn't improved, but he's but- <laughs> still going. That's not down to you, mate. Yeah. Um, but no, I, and you've worked, you know, you, you, you will cover all bases when, when it comes to um, training and rehabilitation. Just talk us through some of the things that you concentrate on and the, the types of people that you work with. Yeah, well, work with with anybody, any client, you know, um, anyone who wants my help sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, I deal with everything from puppies. I do, uh, you know, puppy training. I don't do puppy classes. All my work is one-to-one, one-to-one yeah. um, consultation. So I do, uh, you know, from puppies right up to any dog, uh, you know, old Rescue dogs, you know, and everything in between. I've done deaf dogs, three-legged dogs, you name it. I'll, I'll do it. If there's a behavioural issue, then then I'll, I'll do it, you know. But uh, I, when I first started, I was just dealing with behavioural stuff, mainly with sort of adult dogs, if you like, you know. Uh, and people were contacting me saying, you know, do you do puppy classes? Do you do, you know, puppy training? You know, and I said, you know, no, no, I, I don't. I just deal behavioural stuff, you know. Um, and it wasn't until sort of, yeah, someone's said, well, it, it sort of is behavioural stuff, you know. Um, they, and they said they'd gone to try puppy classes, but in the classes, they don't deal with the, 
the behavioural stuff no. that happens at home, you know, barking at the postman or barking at, out the window uh, yeah. or, um, you know, toilet training, all those sort of things, you know. So I suddenly think, well, actually, yeah, there was this, I suddenly thought, well, actually, there's a niche in the market. I'm turning all these customers away. Well, actually, yeah, there is behavioural stuff. So then I started doing, yeah, be, uh, puppy stuff. Uh, puppy behavioural sessions, yeah. if you like, you know. Because um, so many people, you know, a lot of first-time dog owners, you know, and they'll get a puppy. And it's like, how easy is it to train a puppy? People think, ah, oh, it can't be that difficult, you know. Uh, or I'll just let them be a puppy because they're not puppies for long and then we'll start training them at six months, you know. And yeah. then you've got six months of learnt behaviour. Behaviour, yeah. <laughs> which you've now got to detrain out of them and train all the correct habits into them, yeah. you know. So it's a lot easier to... To get it right from from day one, so, and I was reading earlier on your your, your social media um, rehabilitation training, um, social media stuff, and it's about things like rewarding poor behaviour because owners, I suppose, parents, they're, they're parents, aren't they, to these dogs yeah, in a funny yeah. sort of way? Yeah. But but they will reward bad behaviour when the dog barks. They'll give him a biscuit to stop barking. But they, it, it, yeah, abs- absolutely, yeah. I think it's. Uh, Jumping up, as I put on my yeah. Facebook uh, post yesterday, as uh, I think you picked up on, yeah, jumping up is a classic thing because most dogs jump up and it's like, no, no, off, off, down, 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 whatever, and thinking, I'm telling my dog off, but why does he keep jumping up? It's not until you explain, well, let's you think about it. When he's jumping up, you're looking at him, you're touching him, you're speaking to him. Yeah. So in his world, he's getting rewarded. Yeah. He doesn't know what you're saying. Dogs don't speak English is another big mistake. People, I think their dogs <laughs> understand every word they say. Yeah, and it's not. It's it's basically I would say it's not what you say. It's the way you say it. You know. And now you're published, aren't you? I mean, you've 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 written for publications. You're you're right up yeah. there when it comes to um, being a dog trainer in the in the UK. Um, how's that been for you? Oh, it, it's it's been great. It's just been yeah, as I said, sort of getting better and better every year. Um, it's it's sort of. Basically, the the big thing for me was um, being taken on um, by a chap called Michael Pipe, who's now who's my business manager. Right. Who actually used to be um, Graham Hall, yeah, the yeah, dog father, dog, from dog, yeah, dog father, dog, dog behaving very badly. badly. Yeah. He used to be his manager until. Graham went on to TV and taken on by Channel 5 and wow. he had to have obviously his his people. But, uh, yeah, Michael runs um, a company called Magnificent Seven, which right. he only ever has seven dog behaviourists from all over the, the country to sort of obviously cover the whole whole country. Um, and, um, yeah, he, he, he contacted me, uh, liked what he saw in, in my website and everything, but saw where he could make you know, changes for Brilliant. me. Uh, so, yeah, I contacted him and, um, yeah, long and the short of it, he's, yeah, I've been working with him for about three years now. And, yeah, through him, uh, yeah, uh, got a, um, got to work with Dog Friendly magazine. Uh, I now write uh, a dog behavioural article for Dog Friendly magazine. That's bi-monthly every other, other month. Yeah, so... Uh, it, and and that's brilliant because what people talk about and, and one of the things that we we go on about is transferable skills. Now 
the ability to communicate is the biggest skill that you've got. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but you've yeah. you've you've acquired those skills through your police service. I'm, I'm sure you were yeah. a great communicator before. Yeah. But the no, ability- I, I wasn't. <laughs> That's it. I've always I sort of been sort of fairly shy, sort of thing, and didn't like you know speaking out or anything. But it was definitely be, since I joined the dog section because uh, I joined the dog section, and then again very early on, they used to. Um, go to do talks at WI meetings and scout yeah. meetings and stuff like that. You know, I don't think they're allowed to do it anymore because they haven't got time to do it. No. Um, but, yeah, again, just standing up in front of a group of WI members or, or scouts or whatever, you know. And uh, But then I found, you know, talking about your passion is quite easy. You know, I can do that all the time and it just builds your confidence. And um, Oh, massively. And because um, also then from from that, off duty, I'd done um, some amateur dramatics. Had you well. really? So I have tr- <laughs> trod the boards. Oh. So I've done some amateur dramatics. Uh, so again, again, that just builds your confidence. Yeah, it does massively. Up as, up as well. And uh, as well as done some TV extra work as well. So, oh, did you? Yeah, so it's all sort of a little bit diverse and interesting. But diversification, um, once you leave the police service, is everything, isn't it? Because if you, yeah, yeah accepting yeah. that you are a, you know, you're a dog trainer, that's your business, but you've clearly got the ability to turn your hands to anything if you need to. It's interesting because Graham Hall, Bear in mind that this this whole concept that we have as X job is all about police and military, and Graham Hall was a, a special constable in Northamptonshire. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him the other week, and he's a, like you, very calm, considered, you know, really nice, nice guy. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting world. So, if if anybody wants to get hold of Steve Hutley. Um, how do we get hold of you? If, if we, we want to get hold of you, how do we get hold of you so that our errant dogs are catered? Yeah, for? the easiest way is to go on my website, which is www.stevehutley, my name, Dog Rehab, rehab.co.uk. That goes on to my, my website, Rehabilitation and Training, which says all you know everything about me uh, on there, and there's a contact form to contact me uh, as Brilliant. well. Well, yeah. Steve, you know, I've known you a long time and I found your your chat today fascinating. Okay. Thank you very much. I've learned a lot about you um, and thank you very much for sharing your time with us today and I'm sure that the people listening to this will enjoy it as well. Cheers, Paul. Thanks, mate. More than welcome. Thank you.